Well, thanks again for joining us. Do you, um, if you, I hope you've got a Bible in front of you. Do keep the, the Bible open in front of you or the device that you're reading it on, because we're going to um, mention quite a few verses as we go through today's reading. Uh, let me just bring you up to speed. If you missed last week, do catch up with the talk online. But you'll remember that uh, we introduced the book of Esther, chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2. And uh, we saw that whilst God is nowhere mentioned in the story of Esther, he is everywhere in his hidden activity, that the hidden hand of God is always at work in this story, sometimes even through the seemingly utterly ordinary, unmiraculous, even inglorious activity of uh, the story. King Xerxes getting drunk, God even uses that. And of course, we're reminded throughout Scripture, and it's a comfort to us today, that God can use all the people that are raised into positions of power. God uses King Xerxes. We're not to commend his character or all of his activities, but God uses him for his purposes. God can work all things for the good of those who love him, so the scriptures tell us. Uh, We also learned last week that if we can trust in this fundamental truth, that God, even when we can't see him, even when his hand seems hidden, he is there and he is with us and he is for us. If we can trust that, then we can have joy and gratitude for the way he's weaving things, um, uh, working things for our good. We can have peace in the present. We can hold on to hope for the future. So we saw the power of this truth for our lives. And as we continue today, um, we're introduced as well into the last major character in the book of Esther. So last week we had three of the major characters introduced to us in King Xerxes and Esther. And right at the end of chapter two, Mordecai, this week, we have Haman introduced to us as well. Now, you'll remember, hopefully, right at the end of the last week's reading, um, Mordecai saves the day. He's the hero of the hour because he overhears an assassination plot against the king and reports it in. And just track with that at the end of chapter 2 for me as we um, head into chapter 3. Have a look at um, verse 22 of chapter 2, because Esther gives full credit to Mordecai. He's the hero of the hour. Uh, It says this, But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And crucially, for later in the story, that story gets recorded in the annals of the king. Look at verse 23. All this, the end of it, all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So at the end of um, where we left it last week, it looks like things are going really well. Esther's been made queen, Mordecai's uh, saved the day, but then enter stage left comes Haman. And we instantly know that he's the baddie in the story. And I'm going to dig into some of the things that we might miss in this chapter, just at a glance, if we just read it at a glance, to bring out some of the color, some of the tension rising, some of the drama that that the Jewish audience who first read this story would have only seen too clearly. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3 with me. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, here's the irony. And let's say the Jewish readers probably would have noticed this and seen the drama rising. We're told that Haman is an Agagite. Now, an Agagite, any Jew will have known, was an Amalekite who were ancient enemies of the Jewish people. And and specifically, they had a king called King Agag. Now, King Agag 
was an enemy of the Jewish people, like a, a top enemy of the Jewish people. And they will have remembered that their first king, King Saul, killed King Agag after a battle with the Amalekites. You can find the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So, and then the dramas raise even further when you remember, if, you, if you'd picked up on it in chapter 2, we discover that Mordecai, the other key protagonist, the goody in the story, um, he is a Benjamite son of Kish. and tells us that in chapter 2. Now, why that's interesting is because so was King Saul. King Saul was a Benjamite son of Kish. So what they're reading, what we might miss, is that actually these are two ancient enemies. And it explains a couple of things to us. It explains, first of all, um, any Jew would have read this and thought, oh, I can see what's happening here. Like Mordecai's definitely the goody. Haman's definitely the baddie. Mordecai's just saved the king's life. I can see which way this is going to go. But then at the start of the story, at the start of this chapter, rather, Haman is the one that's raised, elevated, to like second in command of this huge empire. And Mordecai and his saving of King Xerxes is completely forgotten, it seems. Written in the annals, but nothing happens about it. And so what's going on here? It's a shocker. This little bit of history, if we un- as we uncover it, also reveals why it is that Mordecai, in the early verses in chapter 3, will not bow to Haman. He just will not bow to Haman. And when the, the world's officials find out why it is that Mordecai will not bow to Haman, because they kind of plead with him, what, what are you doing? What's this protest about? It's going to get you in trouble. And he explains to them, read um, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4 with me. Day after day, they spoke to Mordecai, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. So the reason for Mordecai's protest is clear. It's this ancient animosity, this feud between King Saul's line and King Agag's line. And uh, if Haman wasn't already aware of Mordecai's lineage, his family, this brings it sharply into focus, and the story takes a turn from bad to worse fast. Look at verse 6 with me. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now, are you with me? Do you realize what's happening here? This is genocide being planned. The whole of the Jewish people across the entire empire to be wiped out. And before you know it, Haman throws some dice. I've brought some dice here. And literally, the story tells us he throws some dice to decide the day that he's hoping that the Jewish people are going to die. Literally throws some dice. And it makes us ask the question, does it not? Is this all just an accident of history? Is life in the lap of the gods? Is your my life just a roll of the dice? Or is there any more purpose to it? Of course, It's the secular view, the atheist view, that there is no rhyme and reason to our life. A very famous quote from Richard Dawkins. I'm sure you won't mind me quoting him. He says this, Some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind 
pitiless indifference. Is life just in the lap of the gods? Now, Haman, at this point in the story, the last thing that he needs to put his plan into action is he needs the king's approval. He can't do this all by himself. It's going to cost a huge amount of money to do it. It's just a, it's a big military operation that he's proposing. And so he goes to the king to get his approval. But how is he going to get the king's approval to wipe out the people that Mordecai, who just saved the king's life, is part of? Well, the way he does it, with alarming contemporary significance, is a bit of fake news and a big fat bribe. <laughs> a bit of fake news. So have a look at verse 8 of chapter 3 uh, with me. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. It's interesting, isn't it? Let's fact check this shall we, what he's saying. First of all, Haman says, a certain people. So he just bunches everybody together. That's the classic tactic of some of the divisive politics that dominates our headlines today, isn't it? Just bunching people all in one um, group. It says, he goes on to say, they keep themselves separate. The customs are different. They do not obey the king. Well, is this true? Well, it's certainly, we can't know for certain how, much, how separate they were or they weren't in their communities, but if they were living anything like Daniel and his friends in Babylon a few years earlier, they were living for the peace and prosperity of the city. They were working within the structures of their government and society. Mordecai is hardly a lawbreaker, is he, if he's saving the king's life when he hears of a conspiracy plot. So this is just a healthy dose of fake news, is it not? unfounded accusations, a big bribe to try and oil the wheels, and a king that perhaps doesn't care too much in the first place. And before you know it, in the matter of just a few verses, an ancient animosity fueled by pride and the roll of a dice and genocides on the cards, and the king is about to approve it. A roll of a dice is life in the lap of gods. Fake news are we all just at the mercy of the algorithms of Google or social media that sweep us along with their headlines? It's all frighteningly contemporary, isn't it? Before we know it, this genocide is put into law. And, uh, but there's one other detail which we might miss, that begins to shift us from thinking it, life is in the lap of the gods or in the algorithms of fake news. Um, and it turns, or we just see a glimpse of it in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Again, we might miss this. But then it says, then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script in each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors in the various pro of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These are written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Now, the key detail there to notice is this happened on the 13th day of the first month. Now, you might say, so what? Well, this is the 13th day of the month of Nisan. Now, every Jew in the whole kingdom would know that the 14th day of Nisan is Passover. So the day that probably this was being distributed across the kingdom is the very day that God's people historically 
remember God's deliverance from Egypt and from Pharaoh. Now, why is this significant? Either that's just a, an accident of history, that it just so happened that this was happening at that time, and the roll of the dice just so happened to be happened, you know, enough months afterwards for God's redemptive purposes to take place. What are we meant to take from this? Well, I would hope that perhaps some of the exiles, perhaps some exiles today, would still be discerning, even in some of the chaos of their time, the hand of God. That in fact, it's not just in the lap of the gods. It isn't just a, a roll of the dice. I think there's another application here, or a couple of applications for us today. First of all, there's the obvious one of like, we've talked about fake news and made that analogy to the story. Let's be really wise and careful about where we do get our news. Make sure that we're not in guilty of being in an echo chamber of continually hearing the same news. It, it, please don't use social media for your news. Just stop it. Um, if you've got Netflix, watch The Social Dilemma, and you'll see why I speak so clearly on that. Um, if you've got teenage kids, watch The Social Dilemma with them. That will help. But more than, um, more than that, even more important than that for the Christian, do you see what this might be a hint of? You see, if those exiles had understood and taken the news of the day, the headlines of the day, this edict, but, but had noticed where it had landed, and that this was the very day that they were remembering their deliverance all those years ago from Pharaoh and from slavery in Egypt, then maybe they would have read this edict through that lens. It's so important for us as Christians to be reading our scriptures and to be praying for spiritual discernment in our day, that as stuff keeps happening around us, as the headlines, the bad headlines come each day, that actually our, our eyes would be fixed on the good headlines, the good news of the gospel. That we would be asking for spiritual insight to discern how we're to live in these times and to have hope, to have peace. Because we don't just absorb endless bad headlines, but are saturating ourselves in the truth of the good news of Jesus, the truth of the scriptures, so that we, like maybe these exiles could have, can discern the hand of God, even in the most bleak moments where genocide is being planned against them. It's so important for us to be trying to hear the whisper of God amidst the clamor of bad news in our world, to see the movements of history with biblical eyes. Things are not spiraling out of control. God is still there. He's still with us. He's still working for our good. But we are told that in our reading, if you continue to look at it, that the people in Susa, when they receive the news and when Mordecai receives the news, that they are bewildered. The king and, uh, and Haman are having a drink. But the city is thrown into some sort of chaos. They are bewildered and confused. This is a, a, actually an empire that was quite well known for its tolerance of other cultures. And yet here, genocide seems to be being planned. And they are shocked and bewildered. So how do we respond? How do the goodies in this story respond? What might we learn from them? Well, Beth's going to be preaching next week, and she's going to bring Esther's response to us um, next week. But this week, we see Mordecai and his response. Uh, read chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 with me. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, 
because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter in it. Enter it. Enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When a crisis hits, how do we respond? When the enemy at the gates and everything seems like it's out of control, how do we respond? What's the first thing we're to do when our nation is under threat, it seems? When even our life is under threat, how do we respond? When Mordecai sees the enemy at the gates, when things seem to be spiraling out of control, when the news arrives in his own city, in the city of, of Susa, what does he do first? Where he weeps loudly, he mourns passionately, he falls on his knees and calls out to God in desperation in the public square for all to see. There's a time for intentional action, and we'll see more of that next week when we pick up the next installment of the story. But the first response is to fall to our knees in prayer, is to recognize the real government and who is really sovereign. Uh, a week ago, just over a week ago, we were still in shock a little bit, reeling at what we'd seen happen on Capitol Hill in the US. And um, all slightly in shock of that, bewildered by the turn of events there on the other side of the pond. But one congresswoman, Lisa Blunt Rochester, gave us a very up-to-date example of how Mordecai responded. Have a look at this video. And that woman there, is a member of Congress, I couldn't find that guy, who exactly? She appears to be making a, a video or a statement because she's giving somewhat of a speech. She's praying, she is praying. Extraordinary video. Here is a congresswoman in the very seat of American government, crying out to the one who's truly in charge. As the enemy's at the door, literally, she's proclaiming the truth, the biblical truth about our God and about Jesus over the whole place. These are some of the words. They're hard to make out in the video, but it was transcribed later. These are some of her, the words of her prayer. Father God, you have all power. We know that all things work together for the good. So we are trusting right now in the name of Jesus. Peace in the land, peace in this country, right now in the name of Jesus. We can apply this, can we not, to our context, to our community, to our nation. How are we to respond to the crises we face today? When the news arrives home in our city, in our community, how are we to respond? When people in our church family like David Harlow and his family are mourning this week when Sue is, or Carol is praying for her husband Paul in hospital, when the enemy at your door might be one of debt or potential redundancy, a relationship in crisis or anxiety about your children's well-being, how do you respond? What's the first thing you do? We're to fall to our knees and to cry out to our God. We're not to be a people bewildered, but a people who throw our focus again on the truths that we know about our God, 
and to cry out to him. In bewilderedness and in grief, two things we need to know. The power of prayer and the presence of God that we have in prayer. The power of prayer and the presence of God that we can enjoy in prayer. I'm so grateful that I know my prayers aren't just lost, they make a difference. And that as I pray, I'm drawn into the very presence of God. What an extraordinary privilege we have. And we get a wonderful final gift of a verse for this in uh, verse 2 of chapter 4. Again, I don't know whether you have noticed it. I didn't notice it until this week as I was preparing for this. It says this of Mordecai, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Mordecai, in his desperation as he's grieving in sackcloth and ashes as he cries out to God, can only go as far as the king's gate. He can't go into the presence of the king, the king's courts. But don't you see that for us as Christians, it's precisely the opposite. This is exactly how we enter into the presence of God, humble and hungry for him. Where Mordecai can't get into the presence of the king, we as Christians, as we come humble and hungry before God, access given to the very presence of God through Jesus and his sacrifice. This is how we come. This is how we get to enter in the power of God, the power of prayer and the presence of God in prayer. And you see, this is the crucial moment, a crucial, crucial moment in our story. We see more of them next week, but this is crucial. You see, this is where, again, we're calling, called to question, is life just in the lap of the gods? Is it just in the algorithms of Google? Is it on the dice that are thrown for us? Or is it in the hands of God? Who do we cry out to? What's the narrative in our minds that we try and interpret the signs of the times? Do we pray? Do we understand who has ultimate authority in the world? Do we know that he's good and that he's for us? Do we enjoy the presence of God and ask his spirit to help us discern what's going on in our lives and in the world? Every time we clasp the hands in prayer, we engage in the power of prayer and in the presence of God. Every time. So let's pray.